you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. In today's episode, we're discussing the somewhat controversial legislation around calorie labeling on menus. We're going to unpack the origins of this law and the evidence base behind it. We'll also explore the law's impact on public health and the food industry, as well as the consequences for those living with an eating disorder. To discuss this topic, I'm delighted to be joined by specialist dietitian and clinical advisor at the UK's eating disorder charity BEAT, Sarah Fuller, and advanced specialist dietitian in obesity and bariatric surgery, Deepti Lumba. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Sarah and Deepti to tell us a bit more about themselves. Sarah, let's start with you. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a specialist eating disorders dietitian and I've worked with children and young people who have eating disorders for around 15 years now. Um, I'm also a clinical advisor to BEAT, as you said, the National Eating Disorders Charity, um, but I have two main research interests and that's veganism and eating disorders and also feeding under restraint in inpatient and paediatric settings. And I've been lucky enough to publish um, papers on both. So and recently I received funding from NHS England for my research and I'm currently working at Imperial College for this. And in 2020, my work on feeding under restraint was recognised by the British Dietetic Association's Role of Honour. And I also have um, a teaching position at the Royal College of Paediatrics um, uh, on their education programme for eating disorders. And I'm going to be on Health Education England's National Eating Disorders Teaching Programme for Children and Young People uh, later next year. And I also work at the University of Northampton as a visiting lecturer for their MSc programme in Child and Adolescent Mental Health. Great, thank you very much, Sarah. Deepti? Hi, I'm Deepti. Uh, as you've just mentioned, Harriet, I'm a specialist in weight management, hormone-driven conditions and a bariatric surgery. As well as that, I'm also a personal trainer. Um, a lot of my career have been in the NHS, digital and private sector. Um, I have extensive knowledge in dietary counselling and supporting various conditions. Um, specifically, that would be around weight loss and emotional eating, type 2 diabetes, uh, PCOS, plant-based and metabolic diseases. Um, due to my own personal background, I can also, I'm aware and uh, like to consider cultural foods as part of our discussions as well. For me, simply, it's not just about um, eating less and moving more. Um, I think it's really important to uh, personalize and shape others' knowledge so that they can make better choices and it empowers them to sustain uh, good habits for lifelong and improve and manage their health conditions. Also find it very rewarding to improve an individual's quality of life and help them reach their health goals. Wonderful. Thank you, Deepti, for joining us as well. So as you both know, before we delve into our topics for discussion, we ask you our quick fire round of questions so that we can get to know you on a bit more of a personal level. So my first question, and Sarah will come to you for this, is where is your favourite place in the world to visit? I thought this was going to be a really easy question. I've thought about it all day. Um, I think um, what I'm going to have to say is any woodland with my dogs. So it could be anywhere as long as I'm in the woods with the dogs. Great answer. Very mindful as well. Deepti, how about you? For me, um, it was actually a little bit easier to answer this question. It'd have to be Australia. I think specifically because I'm going there in the new year and I have family there. So I've got lots of fun memories associated with the place. 
Wonderful. And when you are perhaps traveling to Australia deep tea on the plane, any books that you recommend? Great, great question. Uh, I found that a hard question to answer initially because there's lots of fantastic books, but it has to be Atomic Habits for me. I've read it once and I'm happy to read it again. I just think it's got loads of great practical advice, strategies to use in real life. And Sarah, are you a bookworm as well? Any recommendations? Um, I'm currently reading one of Stephen Fry's books, so about his um, about his experiences growing up, and I've just found them absolutely fascinating. So that's my recommended read. Great, thank you. And then final question, Sarah, what's your favourite food? I think as law, um, eating disorder dietitians have to say chocolate. I think that's fairly, <laughs> that's within our registration. Um, but I think any food can be a favourite food as long as it's with friends or family. Perfect. And deep tea, any favourite foods for you? Same as Sarah, I love all food, but uh, today I'd say I'd probably highlight fish and chips because that's planned for dinner tonight. <laughs> Perfect. Fish Friday. Love it. <laughs> Perfect. So thank you very much. We're going to delve into our episode topics for discussion. But before we get into the nitty gritty of this new legislation, it would be great to hear a bit about your day jobs. So Deep Tea, starting with you, can you tell us a bit more about what your job as a specialist obesity dietitian looks like? So I guess just starting with my general day, um, I we all work as a team. So we kind of review what the priorities are for the day. Um, that would be reviewing what's happening on the wards. Um, as well as that, as you've mentioned, um, a lot of my time, I support individuals with obesity. So I do clinics that's specifically around supporting individuals with the appointments prior to their surgery for gastric sleeve, gastric bypass, the endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty, um, and other interventions such as pharmacology. Uh, we then discuss those cases in the MDT as well. So we make sure that we get a lot of other inputs, make sure it's holistic care always provided. And then I would also check my emails during the day, making sure that I support with any queries as I go along and also um, see patients for follow-ups as well. So busy, but always an enjoyable day because I always find it so fascinating and um, personally really enjoy the area. Thank you. And Sarah, part of your role, I believe, is advising the UK's eating disorder charity BEAT. Can you tell us a bit more about what that role entails? Yeah, thank you. So um, for the last three and a half years, I've been doing that and it's a five year stint now. Um, and I uh, before COVID, we used to meet face to face um, a couple of times a year, but now we meet more frequently, but for short periods of time. So quarterly throughout um, for an afternoon. And um, it's a group. The clinical advisory group is um we have representatives from psychiatry, from child and adolescent, from occupational therapy, from dietetics, from um, nursing. So any professional um, body that uh, would work with um, either children or young people, adults with eating disorders across the spectrum from early intervention to severe and enduring. Um, and it's uh, Beach will have various kind of projects that they're working on around. It could be um about focusing on early intervention or focusing on calories or menus like we're discussing or focusing on getting medical schools to improve education so each quarter they'll have like a new project and they'll be running the literature reviews the advice through the um, advisory group and we'll all be able to give our additional comments and our kind of expertise and views 
from our specific um, professional stance. So it's a really good group. And yeah, so um, even if people can't make it, then people will always be able to comment on whichever document we're working on that time. Great, thank you. And we'll come on to the impact that this new legislation potentially has on people living with eating disorders later in the episode. Before we do that, I want to set the scene. In April 2022, new legislation came into force in England requiring large businesses to show calorie information on their menus and food labels, as well as displaying daily calorie needs. So can you tell us what the background is to this law? So I guess just um, providing a little bit of a background around it. So I know that the UK introduced voluntary calorie labelling as part of their public health responsibility deal in 2011. And over 40 businesses representing 9,500 outlets signed up to provide some calorie information on how food was prepared. And then in 2018, um, the public health body launched a campaign to reduce calories in foods by 20%. Um, with the aim for this to happen in 2024. So for large food businesses to support this calorie reduction, that encourages them to now reformulate their meals um, naturally because they would have to display their calories on their menus. Um, but uh, what I find quite interesting is actually on a bit of on a side note that in 2018 also USA mandated um, nationwide menu calorie labeling for um, lots of restaurant chains with more than 20 locations. So um, it's both UK and USA kind of using this initiative to really support others and hope to make better decisions. Thank you. And Sarah, can you explain to us what the aims or purposes are of this new piece of legislation? I think the the well-meaning aim was to help people make healthier choices. Um, but it uh, is done it on a very reductionist way of saying that calories are the only way to make healthy choices and also that the healthy choices are the same for everyone. So um, I think it it was very well-meaning, but it hasn't quite hit the mark, as I'm sure we'll discuss later on. Yeah, absolutely. We'll come on to that. Um, I wanted to ask about the evidence base behind this piece of legislation, Deep Tea. Um, I'm aware that there was a Cochrane review not that long ago in 2021, which I believe had quite low quality evidence to support this initiative. Um, so what are your thoughts on the, the evidence base behind it? I think that's a really great, a great question. But as healthcare professionals, we always want to make sure that everything is quite evidence based and make sure that we do have quality research around it. But just as what you mentioned, the study highlighted that, sadly, there is very little existing research um, which shows that the effectiveness around this initiative. Um, The study did review multiple settings, which was great, um, and they did notice that it could support other establishments like cafeterias, for example. Um, However, the longitudinal research and evidence around the impact it could have over the next couple of years is not there. As well as that, I guess it also shows the reduction calorie in that specific moment. We're unsure of how an individual could compensate over the week. So it's really important to kind of look at the full picture rather than the one sitting of that meal consumed. So I suppose a a simple answer to that, we probably need a lot more research. Sarah, did you want to add something to that? 
Yeah, um, so I really like Deepti's point about, you know, it's just one meal potentially out of a week. It's not every meal that people are eating out. But um, I'm aware of a paper in the British Medical Journal in 2019 that looked at, um, in the US, fast food um, outlets having um, calorie labelling. And actually it um, resulted in a 4% reduction in calories across across the whole study. Um, but actually that over time, over a, a one year follow-up period actually diminished. So even though um, some people may be making different choices in the moment initially, actually at one year, they were making their usual choices. So it actually had a very limited impact. So it's really interesting. Um, and I'll be really interested to see what data we're getting from the UK and well from England as a result of making the changes. Thank you. And Sarah, from your perspective, I understand that the legislation stipulates that obviously calories must be displayed on the menus, but not other micronutrients or sorry, not other macronutrients that we might consider important, such as protein, for example. What are your thoughts on that? I think it just gives a very reductionist um, attitude towards nutrition. It just says the nutrition is the calories. But as you've already pointed out, it's also the breakdown of protein, fats, carbohydrates, those sorts of things. And also it could be, um, you know, why not give information on how much carbohydrate a portion of that food contains for those who have to carbohydrate count? Lots of people with insulin would find that really helpful um, instead of having to estimate that. Um, and uh, other things might, you know, for example, if you know we're all trying to eat more plant-based foods, you know, how many portions of plants are we having in this meal? Those sorts of information would be able to give people more balanced information for a wide variety of um, kind of healthy choices, not just one about calories. And from your experience, Sarah, um, working with people living with eating disorders, do you think that people are kind of judging the healthiness of a meal or a food just on the number of calories that they're seeing on that menu alone? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've got young people as young as eight and nine coming into our clinic saying, you know, we went out to go and eat for granny's birthday and I couldn't eat that because it had too many calories on. So we're seeing a real impact and um, it, for people who are making choices, it is one choice within a week and the impact of going out and having a, a meal with family and friends isn't just about the nutrition, it's about the socialising, it's about being with your being with your family and enjoying spending time with them. So it really um, impacts people who are worried about their eating and worried about their nutrition. Um, I know my um, my partner's uh, Christmas meal choices went round and they were all looking at the menu going, well, I'm not choosing that because did you, how many calories are in that option? So they were all talking about it in the office and he came back and said that. And that's something that they would never have chosen to talk about before is yeah, a bunch of IT professionals talking about calories on a Christmas dinner. Yeah, so I guess it is sparking conversation amongst the general public, but how um, useful that conversation is remains to be seen. Um, Deep tea, in terms of the calorie m values that we're seeing on menus, how accurate are they actually likely to be, do you think? I, I think that's a really good question. And I also feel that a lot of individuals are quite well informed of how inaccurate <laughs> it potentially can be as well. So I guess just taking a bit of a step back, we know calorie represents how much energy you could get from consuming a certain food. 
calories come from manufacturers and are regulated by law, but the agency allows 20% margin of error within FDA limits. Um, we also know that it originates from an American chemist. Um, we got uh, who noticed that different foods are digested in different ways, um, and that impacts the calories you extract. But it doesn't suggest anything such as we spoke about protein, for example, protein items may require as much as five times more energy to digest than fats. And um, that's because of the enzymes needed to unravel these amino acids. So the calorie information, actually, it doesn't represent the fact that certain foods require more energy to digest it. And just looking at calories alone doesn't really give that information. Instead, it just shows us a, a, sim a simple view of looking at food or just calories. Um, I guess we've spoken about this in a lot more detail, which is why it's so important to see food as a whole and micronutrients and fats, sugar and salt, and not just focusing on calories only to help make your decisions. Thank you, Sarah. I think you wanted to add something here. Yeah, and I completely agree, Deepti, but it's also around, um, you know, the kind of bioavailability of the foods that we have. So if something's a very processed food, a really good example is a whole almond versus the ground almond. The ground almonds have the kind of the crust of the, um, of the almonds kind of ground away. And so you've lost all the fibre on a packet. They would say that they've got the same calories, but actually we know that because of the higher amount of fiber in the whole almond you wouldn't actually get the same or you get about a third less calories from that so it's really misleading so it depends on how not just the nature of the food but also what how much it's processed as well so it's a really really complicated area yeah absolutely um and obviously we're just touching on the surface of some of the pros and cons of this legislation now in terms of the impact that this legislation will have on children um I guess it's easy to say, well, deep tea coming at it from an obesity perspective, you know, maybe there are positives, Sarah, from an eating sort of perspective, possibly negatives. But let's delve into that in a bit more detail. So deep tea, what do you think the impact will be on children from your perspective? I, I thought that was a really good question. I guess just as we both have all been speaking about, it really oversimplifies how we perceive food and recognizing that from early stages it doesn't indicate the benefits of variety and how important it is to be aware of micronutrients in food and its uses. And it doesn't give any information around fats and salts and sugar. And we know from dietary surveys that children do tend to have an overconsumption of sugar. So I guess it's, it's oversimplifying food and it doesn't show food as a whole and the benefits that it could provide. So I guess it's a surface level understanding of what food does. It provides us with energy, but the rest of those benefits are not mentioned. So I think it's a good starting point, <laughs> but lots of other information is still needed to really help children make better decisions. And then that can have a wider domino effect to support the rest of their family as well. Thank you. And Sarah, do you think there are any benefits for children seeing calories on menus from your perspective? Um, from my perspective, unlikely for benefits. All I can know is when I go out with my nephews and nieces and how they are saying, you know, when they're saying, you know, why are these numbers here? These numbers are making me anxious. Um, and also for very young children, it introduces the idea of calories and counting and something that needs to be monitored. Um, and so more of a hyper focus on food. 
Um, I know that the the young people I see, I saw a 12-year-old boy this week and he's got anorexia. And when we were just trying to unpick what was going on, he was like, but the calories are too much. And I was like, well, what what's your understanding of calories? And he said, well, anything more than 100 is too much. 100 is a really big number. And so he'd been restricting what he would, he was only allowing himself to eat anything less than 100 calories because in his world, 100 is a really big number. And so they don't yet have that perspective, but they're given that information about this is something that needs to be monitored and that can be bad. And for those people who are really black and white in their thinking, it presents food as good food and bad food. And actually, it's a lot more complex and nuanced than that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just want to come back to Deepti here to go back to what we we're talking about, the impact of this legislation on um, public health problems like obesity. Are there any benefits to having calories on menus, do you think, or should we scrap it altogether? I guess I, I was trying to think of, you know, it's, it is easy for us to say that there, lots, there needs to be lots of changes with this initiative, but I'm just trying to see the benefits of what this could, uh, what this impact could have for an individual. So I guess it can help them be aware of calories, uh, calorific options on the menu. And if anything, it can open discussions with the consumer and the restaurant of how to modify the meal, as long as they can still enjoy that meal and get that satisfaction and enjoy that social experiences. So, you know, a simple way is they'd enjoy that meal um, with tomato sauce instead of cream. I guess on a wider scale, it could support larger businesses to improve how they prepare food and source different ingredients and improve the calorie intake of their meals, as well as making sure that the consumers are happy with the overall food uh, nutritional information. And, you know, just taking another step back for those individuals that eat out really often and it's very difficult for them to manage a busy life. I guess it just helps them to be a bit more informed and making better decisions. Um, as long as they don't sacrifice, you know, their social well-being, quality of life and still enjoy a variety of options as well. Uh, so I guess it's just striking the fine balance um, more for an individual on a personal level. Thank you. Sarah, you've already touched on the impacts of this legislation on people that you work with who live with eating disorders. Um, what what other impacts are you seeing um, with patients that you're, um, you're mixing with sort of day to day? So the, the people who've already got diagnosed eating disorders are finding it really hard. As part of treatment, we would be recommending that social eating, going out, eating a, out at a cafe, at restaurants, going out with friends, having birthday cakes and things like that. And suddenly there's an extra layer of anxiety. We've got calories on on walls. You can't avoid a wall. You can ask for, a ca- you know, not to see a menu but you can't avoid the wall. <laughs> it's literally there. Um, and so people are, it's making it more hard for them because they're actively um, restricting the places that they can go to, to go finding the smaller businesses that don't have calories on menus and things like that. So it's making um, recovery harder for people. But we also know that those people who, if you were to give um, people with diagnosed eating disorders, a hypothetical food choice of what would you choose, that people with restrictive eating disorders, such as anorexia or bulimia, um, would always choose lower calorie options. And those with um, binge eating disorder always choose higher calorie options. And so there's something around it keeps that um, the, the disordered 
thinking and behaviors around food it kind of nurtures them and keeps them going so it makes it harder to recover um and that research was from 2017 i think yeah interesting and as you mentioned i think there is an option in a lot of restaurants that you can have a, a menu that doesn't have calories on it but as you say you know you just have to go onto the website or anything like that and then that information is instantly available to you so we've touched upon the pros and cons of this legislation in quite a bit of detail but are there any other arguments that either of you would like to raise for or against this legislation I think just as what you mentioned, Harriet, earlier, looking back around the evidence and sadly the evidence is quite limited at the moment and it just emphasises the importance that we have good solid evidence and research backing to show longitudinal studies and recognising the effectiveness and benefits, but as well as that we need to get consumer feedback. So it's great to look at statistically, you know, the nutritional value of um, how much we're consuming could be different, but actually thinking about an individual satisfaction, knowing about what their food calorie intake will be prior to them sitting down. Um, So we need both really, so quantity and quality um, information now um, with some research to show if it really will be effective and how can we mold this strategy to improve the effectiveness if needed. Yeah, I really... Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, I do agree. We do need the research. We need that um, prospective kind of research around since since this law was introduced, what's what have the big companies that it's affected done around their portion sizes? Um, the reality is the world has changed an awful lot, and not just because of the pandemic. We've got the cost of living and um, the cost of food production has skyrocketed. And so we we need very nuanced analysis as to if portions are getting smaller that companies are serving, why is that? Is that because of the law or is that because they are not able to make as much money as they did beforehand and the, their cost of produ- producing the food has gone up and therefore that has made the um, portion smaller. So it needs to be really, um, needs um, kind of that prospective analysis, but it ne- really needs unpicking because it's not just about did the portions get smaller. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And Deepti, I want to bring you in here from an obesity perspective. Do you think that displaying calorie information will encourage businesses to reformulate or provide more low calorie options for customers? I guess just thinking about that question now again, I guess from from a business perspective, so I guess if I was in ever in their shoes, you'd want to remain competitive. Um, and to show that your meals can be enjoyable as well as hopefully being a bit more nutritionally complete and to have better initiatives of trying to reduce um, high calorie options. So it's going to have a wider domino effect in the sense of by competing with other companies and businesses, they need to be marketing themselves of having healthier choices. So in that sense, it could be a positive (laughs) incentive um, I guess is just recognizing it hopefully doesn't have detrimental impact to the individual where they don't become fixated just on that one sole meal. Um, so that's a slight benefit if we can see some sort of hope of light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, did you want to add anything to that? 
No. Okay. Well, we'll move on to the next question then, which is um, if you had the choice as to whether or not you would uh, pass this piece of legislation, what would your decision be? Sarah, let's go to you first. I think some legislation around food and nutrition is needed, um, allowing people to make more informed decisions. But it's not just not in the current form. It needs to be much broader and more integrated in a much more integrated approach to public health, obesity and eating disorders. You know, thinking about um, having access to all the information, but for a variety of, you know, not just food allergies and things like that. Um, but, you know, if I was to pass some form of law, we would be, I'd be looking at kind of supporting people who are in weight management clinics who actually have um, binge eating disorder. And actually that's treatable. So we can, you know, move money from around the NHS to support them better. And then naturally their weight would come down and there we, we would be supporting that obese population much better. So we've really got to think in a much more integrated way as to how we can support the, the nation's kind of obesity problem. Yeah, no, thank you for that perspective. Deep T, would you have passed the law personally? I I think it's a I think it's a good starting point. I think I do understand the initiative um, as an initial way of supporting individuals to make better choices, but I think as we've all been discussing, it does require some modification. Um, we need to make sure that we have other information available. So we spoke about fats, we spoke about sugar, we spoke about salt, we spoke about the fact that the dietary surveys show that children are consuming, sadly, foods that contain still a lot of sugar, um, so which shows the importance of making sure that we have other information apart from just calories. And also creating awareness of micronutrients and the variety of foods that we should be consuming. As well as that, once we once any new strategy has been implemented, I think it's always really important to get feedback and how the impact that can have on populations, uh, groups of different areas, and also just their individual experience of having that meal and knowing what the menu information is. So a good starting point in a nutshell. And I guess maybe we need some more modification and changes with this. Thank you, Sarah. I think you wanted to add something there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, we're as a group, the three of us, we're thinking quite broadly. But one of the things that we haven't kind of acknowledged yet is the link between obesity and poverty and the fact that for some people choosing ultra processed, high calorie foods is the only option that they can afford to um to to buy and we know the use of food banks has gone up through the roof um since the pandemic and so we know that actually if we were to really target the most vulnerable vulnerable families within our society that would have a positive impact on their health and their weight and so it's about not just thinking about um uh, you know, how we support them from a food bank perspective, but also, you know, allowing them to afford to make more healthier choices um, and things like that. So we really got to start thinking um, it's so complex, this issue, um, but we really do have to acknowledge that for some people, poverty um, means that they make, they are forced to make choices that they wouldn't usually do. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you say, it's a very relevant time to be discussing that at the moment, especially with cost of living being at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. 
Um, so thank you for raising that. I want to hear what both of your thoughts are on the fairly recent news that the government is reviewing and may potentially actually scrap um, proposed legislation or their obesity strategy. Um, Deepti, what are your thoughts on that? I, I guess as you, I guess as we can kind of we've also echoed the concerns around the menus being shown and the calorie information. I guess if it is being scrapped, what other work can we be doing? Because obesity cases are still rising. We have the impact of COVID, which is obviously a scare on any health implications associated by also being obese. And we know health markers become more detrimental um, if you are overweight. So there still needs to be work happening. So can we be doing anything else? Or could we, could we be working with restaurants and businesses and helping them directly with how they process food, ensuring that they're producing food of higher quality, even if they're not sharing the information with others, um, unless they require it and or ask for it? Um, can we still keep um, getting schools involved um, specifically going into uh, assemblies or classes with children, informing them of food as a whole and not just calorie specific. So they don't define healthy foods as just being low calories, but actually more about variety and micronutrients. And uh, should we be doing things about advertising as well? You, this, you know, uh, ultra processed food is highly palatable and cheaper, as Sarah mentioned. And that needs to be improved. So the way we advertise food needs to change as well. And we know that adverts and TV adverts and posters wherever we go is everywhere in train stations on TV. So we can be doing lots of other great work, even if the government is scrapping or changing this regulation. Yeah, no, thank you for um, sharing your suggestions there. Sarah, what are your thoughts on the government reviewing their obesity strategy? I think we absolutely need a strategy. We need a strategy that um, helps the, our more vulnerable people in society to live healthier options, and that will have such a positive impact on not those people, but the you know the whole country and, and as an, an economy. But I think if we are looking at specifically calories on menus, I'd be more than happy to scrap that on menus, but have it available for people. So to have menus that do contain calories and menus that don't contain calories, but the menus that do contain calories, not will they just have the allergen information, but also the um, additional information about carbohydrate loads, um, about grams of protein, fats, the amount of fiber, we really need to be focusing on you know, how much fiber is in our diet, things like that. So there's so much more nutritional information that you can have and have it if you want it. If you want to access it, scan something, you can go to it, you can go on a website. It doesn't need to be there in the restaurant, unasked for. It's like the it's like the unwelcome house guest at the table where you're saying, you know, we didn't want to be upset about how many calories have we brought got in our Christmas lunch. We wanted to enjoy our Christmas lunch. Um, so I think we do need a strategy. We need to help the most vulnerable people. If for some people, obesity is linked with an eating disorder with binge eating. So we can we can treat that. That's completely treatable. Um, and so we really need this kind of um, much more um, dynamic and integrated approach to public health and obesity that currently is lacking. Mm, absolutely. And if people listening have got patients who are struggling with this legislation about displaying calories on menus and it's having a negative impact on their lives, 
Sarah, what advice would you give to these dietitians or where can they direct their patients to? So a lot of um, restaurants are now um, kind of uh, able to facilitate, you know, menus have been scrubbed out on uh, calories have been scrubbed out on some menus um going to those smaller um uh kind of restaurants and cafes that don't uh, legally require um the the menus on there i know that beat has an excellent resource on their website around how to tackle um calories on menus a lot of my families will say right we'll decide what we'll, we'll have a look at the menu and you know, we'll talk as a family as to what we want and maybe mum or dad or whoever is reading the menu saying we've got fish and chips, we've got spag bar, we've got lasagna, we've got roast dinner, blah, blah, blah. Who wants what? And so people will make their choices in the way that they would have done before by the name of the food and just you know what they what they fancy. Then they can go into the restaurant and say, right, we're having two roast dinners, one spag bar and one lasagna. Thank you very much. We don't need the menu. And so lots of families are kind of ne- negotiating it that way or you know, having a, a friend or, or someone go with you and make certain choices for you, depending on what stage you're at in your recovery. But there's definitely lots of resources out there. Thank you. And we can certainly link to some of those ones that you mentioned in the show notes as well. Um, Deep T, have you got any advice to dietitians listening who might want a bit more information on this topic? I I agree similarly with what Sarah said. I think it's really important to be aware of when we are doing our assessments or getting in touch with other individuals, we think about the impact this regu- regulation may have. Um, and if it is an impact to someone with their mental health and creating a lot of anxiety around eating, um, I think it's really important to start taking those first initiatives and have the discussions and to potentially signpost to beat, just as Sarah said, I know that they have a helpline and that could just be a starting conversation. It's just really important to unpick those conversations and making sure that we really delve and probe further and signpost um, where needed. I guess it's really important to also be aware of our scope of practice and our remits, but that's the importance of having specialist areas such as beat to really start and help um, someone take positive steps towards the recovery or at least having um, someone for that a bit of support um, and opening, shedding light of any concerns that they're having. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Deep Tea. And a huge thank you to both of you for your time today and for sharing your valuable experience with us. Thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.